always got the desire to like go back and teach the whole the whole shebang again, teach the whole book again, so we can uh, kind of have the t context of where we're at. But uh, you guys have been faithfully coming, following along, and uh, you know we're we're. Uh, this is just a wonderful unfolding of what God wants to do and make new. And uh, uh, some of it's ahead of us. Some of it was accomplished at the cross. And we'll, we'll, we'll just, we'll dig in. We'll go for it. Um, I know we're in Revelation 21, but would you turn for a second back to John 2? Um, John chapter 2. First miracle that Jesus did was water to wine. The one... Uh, I mean, it just even when we say it in today's culture, um, you know, for me coming out of an addiction, that's all. That's always a little bit strange. Like Jesus's first miracle was making 180 gallons of wine. He made 180 gallons of wine. Um, and we're not going to so much talk about alcohol and the dangers of it and the, you know, the liberty that we have and all of that, the mix there. Um, but I just want you to remember the story and to remember something or to see something of Jesus that is uh, coming or is going to come out in Revelation chapter 21. And uh, we'll go through this very briefly. Uh, John chapter 2, um, Jesus and his disciples, mom, all end up invited to the same wedding. John chapter 2, verse 3, there was a problem at the wedding. They ran out of wine. And Jesus' mom, Mary, came to Jesus and say, said they have no wine, which was a big deal. Why? Because it would be a disgrace specifically to the bride's family that was throwing this celebration. It'd be an incredible social disgrace to run out of wine before that long feast, seven-day feast, was over. It would make them look like, like garbage to everybody. I mean, it was just something that you wanted to avoid at all costs. You know, Jesus says to his mom, we're not going to dig into all of this, but he says, you know, woman, that's a nice term, not like he's talking down to his mom. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. And his, his mother said to the servants that were helping with the feast, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. They were hand-washing cisterns or whatever, buckets, but bigger than buckets. It contained 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to the servants, he said, fill the water pots with wine. Or, I'm, I'm sorry, fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them to the brim. You know, what are we called? We're called, we're called bond servants of Christ in the New Testament. And often we are called, just like these guys were, to, to, to humbly follow the directions of our master, to do what he says, and we're like, putting water into these buckets like he said that he's going to make something incredible out of whatever plain thing we're doing. You know, guys showed up uh, before the service started and they set up the chairs that you're sitting in. You know, they set up the sound system that are right here. They're hanging out watching the kids, making sure things are safe, right? It's a simple thing. It doesn't seem all that spiritual, does it? But it's, it's, it's doing something simple, practical. It's doing what they're called to do, they feel led to do. And they are trusting God with the result. And these servants, they're dumping water and they fully know that it's water. It's just, it's just H2O. It's not wine. But they're acting in obedience to what Jesus says. I think in that, there's faith, right? They didn't say, no, this is impossible. This is stupid. I'm not doing anything. They did what he said. 
I'm sure they kind of were maybe a little skeptical. They wondered about what he would do and all of that. And then Jesus said to the servants, now this is really a step of faith. He said, draw, faith, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, but he didn't know where it came from. Only the servants who had drawn the water knew. They knew that they had put in water and it had changed to wine. But, you know, the master of the feast, the guy running the feast, did not know that. When he tasted the wine, the master of the feast called out to the bridegroom. He called out to the bridegroom and he says this. He said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and then the guests, when the guests have well drunk, then he puts out the inferior because they can't tell the difference. At the end of the feast, they've already drank some wine. They don't care if it's good or bad. They just. But he says, you have kept the best wine or the good wine until now. This was the beginning of signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And he demonstrated his glory and his disciples believed in him. You know, what, as we read the last two chapters in the Bible, I want you to observe this principle. Jesus has saved the best for last. And he has protected, well, in the story, I mean, the bridegroom is mentioned, the bride. He has protected the bridegroom and the bride in that circumstance from disgrace. And that is still true of us. He has protected us from disgrace and he saved the best for, la the best for last. And we're looking at him saying, we don't deserve this. I mean, the, you know, the bride and groom in that story didn't do anything to deserve Jesus stepping in and saving the day. But that's what Revelation 21 and 22 is about. He has saved the best for last right? We are just like the servants. We throw in water, right? We're, we're doing what we read in the word. We're, we're trying to be obedient. We're trying to live for Christ. We're trying to, you know, to turn to him and, and allow him to change us and take part in that process too, right? And it seems like we're just, we're just dumping simple water into a pot. But look, he will turn it to wine. He will do something that we cannot possibly do. And that's what we read about in Revelation 21. He makes all things new. We can't make wine. You know, we can't end the story the same way that he ends the story. You know, that wedding should have ended in disgrace. Our lives should end in disgrace. We know what's right and we, we can't do it. We won't do it at times. But Jesus has saved the, the best for last and he steps in to make it right. That's an incredible, you know, and I, I think there was a reason. That was the first miracle. John says the beginning of signs. It's going to be how he ends it. You know, Jesus, we're going to read it. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one that started it. He's the one that ended it. What did he start? He started my faith. He started your faith. And he will complete it. He'll bring it to completion. He's saving the best for last. You know, we're not going to get to heaven and be like, oh, we worked so hard for you, Jesus. Now pay up. <laughs> it's not going to be like that. We're going to stand in awe. You know, when the bridegroom and the bride found out that they'd run out of wine or if they knew, I don't know how that all went down, right? We're going to stand there and say, man, this is not what we deserve. And I don't think that feeling is going to go, I think it's greater than a feeling. I don't think that gratitude is going to disappear as we go longer and longer into eternity, you know? Is we're going to stare at Jesus and see that his scars, the only man-made thing in heaven, right? And the new heavens and the new earth, they're going to last too. And we're going to look at those for eternity. Oh, John 21 starts this, 
John 21, Revelation 21, same author, John the Apostle writing. John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Hey, where are we spending eternity? Heaven? <laughs> it says we're spending eternity. This is going to tell us that we're spending eternity on a new heaven and a new earth. So that concept that we were all, you know, drilled into our heads, Sunday school, I mean, that's technically correct, I guess. You know, God is going to do something that's going to be great. But where are we going? I'm going to a new heaven and a new earth. That's what the scripture says. So I'm not going to go and play a harp. I'm bad at guitar anyway. So, you know, they're not going to trust me with a harp up there, right? Uh, I'm not going to go sit on a cloud and, like, just have a diaper on and be playing, you know, hard. I'm, it's not, that's not my future. My future is God is preparing, you know, a dwelling place for me, and it's a new heaven and a new earth. So we've got to kind of sidestep that, you know, age old, oh, where are you going, heaven or hell? Well, no, no, no. Are you going to hell or are you going to a lake of fire, really, which is worse than the hell that we read of at times in the Bible, or are you going to a new heaven and a new earth? Well, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's something created out of nothing, guys. That's not a rehabbed earth. That's not a restored earth. It's a totally brand new world and universe. And he says, there was no more sea. Uh, having just been down to the coast in uh, uh, southern Maine, I mean, the sea's a beautiful thing kind of scary um uh i don't get i don't i don't get that interpret that the way you think you should i don't know i don't know why he's gonna i mean if it's salt water he gets rid of that and we just have freshwater lakes with i want waves i want a boogie board with my son you know i love that um i, I don't know what to make of that so you'll have to try to sort that one out for yourself you know what's interesting to me is when he says i'm gonna make something new that tells me that the old was not good enough, right? You guys remember Easter, I taught on blind Bartimaeus, who was a beggar that's, that, was that was blind, like his name, right? And he was sitting by the road outside of Jericho, and Jesus came by, and the dude was begging for money. He was not begging everybody that came by for sight, because nobody could do that for him. But when he heard Jesus was coming, Jesus, the son of David, no doubt he'd heard that this man had made other blind people see. What did he cry out for, for from Jesus? He cried out for his sight. He didn't cry out for money. He cried out for what he really longed for, wouldn't you say? Like money was just, I mean, that's what he needed to survive. But what he really wanted was his sight. He wanted his sight. He longed for something that no man could give him. You could say that he was discontent with this world. Why? Because he was blind. He wanted more. And I think we would do well to follow his example of this world should, we should look around. I mean, beautiful day, right? Um, of course, it's going to thunderstorm. The weather's going to change in five minutes. And then, you know, that's just the way Maine is, right? Beautiful day. There are many things here to enjoy. Every good and every perfect gift is from our, our Father above. There's no turning. There's no changing in him. But there are things about this world that should make us discontent with the way that things are here. And not just about out like our environment, but even about ourselves, about the people around us. Like, this is not the way that I would want things to be forever, wouldn't you say? And as we read, Jesus is going to say that feeling of thirst or discontentment or dissatisfaction with the here and now is something that was put in us that we would hope for what is still ahead. 
and not settle for what is inferior. The best wine for last. John says in uh, verse 2 of Revelation 21, he says, Then I, I like the way that he says this, Then I, John, saw the holy city. You know, you could read that like he's saying, Then I, of all people, got to see the, the holy city, what God is preparing for us, which is not, it's just a part of this new creation. It's part of the new heaven and the new earth. And, uh, you know, I don't think John ever lost sight of the fact that he was a sinner saved by God's grace. You know, he says, I got to see this. Would you believe it? You know, what's amazing is, I don't know what position, if we'll be like standing next to John, there or we'll be descending on this new city. I don't know exactly all those details, but we are going to anybody around when God created the heavens and the earth back in Genesis? No. Will we be around when God creates a new heaven and a new earth? Yes. We're going to see him make something out of nothing. And you know what? For us that are saved, we'll, that won't be the first time that's happened because we've seen him do that in our life. lives. Take something that is dead and give it newness of life. That's what scripture says. He's just going to continue that. You know, in, the, in Genesis, when he says he created the heavens and the earth, the Hebrew word there is bara. He made it out of nothing. He didn't start with a building block and say, oh, I'm going to take this raw element, make it into something better. He started with nothing. Man, that sounds like my life. The only thing I contributed to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And that's true for you, just like it is for me. John saw the holy city. We get to, we get to dwell in a holy city. It's because we're holy, right? Because we're righteous? Because we're awesome? Because we've done everything right? No. Because he's washed us white. What's wrong? <laughs> John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I think I've, I've, I've taught on this like three or four times. I'm probably going to say all the same things I've always said. But man, there was something special about the day that Jess prepared herself as a bride and walked in. I hadn't seen her yet. That's just the way we chose to do it. She walked in with her dad at the church we got married at and she came around the corner through the doors and it was amazing to me. You know, uh, what God is preparing is, is not just functional, right? It's beautiful. It's perfectly suited to, to us and for us for eternity. You know, as a guy, I mean, I can just relate. Uh, maybe this is uh, like hard to relate, you know, for you ladies that have been married. But as a husband, man, I long for that day. I waited for that day. And to have God say, hey, you know what the new heavens and the new earth coming down will be like? In fact, you know what it'll be better than? It'll be better than your wedding day. It'll be better than when your bride down here walked in and said, I'm choosing you. And my wife didn't choose me because I was perfect, right? <laughs> no, far from it. Man, what, a, what an incredible thing. You know, uh, you don't have to turn there, but back in Isaiah 25, you know, new heavens and a new earth are compared to a feast where we eat the choice pieces. Uh, whatever that means, I know it means ribeyes. Like, ribeyes are free, you know? Like uh, a feast where we have the, the, the well-refined wines, the best wines. Again, John 2. It says, He will destroy 
talking about um, the new heavens and the earth and what's going away and what's coming to stay, it says he will destroy, God will destroy on this mountain, the Mount, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. What is he talking about? What is Isaiah prophetically talking about? He's talking about that which separates us. Anybody see God, you know, on a daily basis here? I don't. That will change. That will change. You know, that covering, that veil, that, that, that feeling of distance, you know, that Jesus died to bring us close to the Father. There's still times where we feel so distant, right? That will change. He says that covering, that veil, you know, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, everyone that's there. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. What's the rebuke of, the, of, of us as Christians? Where's your God now? Can't see him, can you? Didn't come through for you, did he? He will take away that rebuke forever. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. Behold means look. Look, right there. That is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And man, I felt just like that on my wedding day. This is my bride. I waited for this, but I don't deserve this. But here she is in all of her beauty. She's coming to be with me. And that's what God um, says. Look, new heaven, new earth, you know. Uh, the holy city, this rebuilt Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to get some description, not so much today, but next week and the following weeks. It is like a bride prepared and adorned for her husband. Man, that was such a special day for me and Jess. I can only imagine. It's a foretaste of a greater reality. And I heard a loud voice from heaven. I don't think this is necessarily God. I think it's an angel, but it doesn't much matter. Saying, behold, or look, look at this. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You know what that's saying? God is going to come and he's going to stoop down again and come and make a home with people like us, right? So if your gospel has God descending to you because you've ascended so high and been so good, you've got the wrong gospel. This is the gospel, that God was gracious in giving us what we never could have earned or deserved by sending his son to die for our sins and then doing this into eternity. He comes down to us and makes his home with us. He says that covering, that veil, that, that feeling of distance, that you can't see me, that, you, that will be gone forever. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We just read that in Isaiah, you know. Old Testament, it's there too, guys. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know what is really cool about that to me? Is I don't think that's like God is like from the throne. He's just like, whoosh, you know, one hand, you know, just like a congregation wiping of the tears. I think it's very personal and individualistic. He will wipe your tears away personally. It's not like just this vague, oh, he's way distant, he's way holy, he's way up there. And whoosh. No, that's not who he is. That's not who Jesus was. You read the Gospels and you find that Jesus met with people. He stopped 
when one person cried out for help. He stopped when that woman with the issue of blood just tucked up, tugged on his shirt and didn't even want him to know that she was doing it. He stopped. He took people one at a time. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, that's something new because there's tears here for sure. There's things that break our hearts. There's things we do to other people that other people do to us that this world has happening that we, we, we seemingly can't control or do anything about that break our hearts. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. No more death. Ever. No more fear of death. Ever. No sorrow. There shall be no more crying. A happy tears, I mean, those happen to me. And it's, a, it's always a wonderful thing. Unless I'm in... I think one of the last times it happened was I was on an airplane sitting next to my sister and it just, I happened to be listening to a worship song and just, bam, started, you know, crying. It's embarrassing. It's like, what do I do? Like, I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't like upset. I was overjoyed in what God had done for me. I don't know if that'll still be there. It'd be a little different. There'll be no more crying. There shall be no more pain. Just talking physical pain. I think there's a lot of other kinds of pain too that we've experienced here. For the former things have passed away. You know what? They need to. They need to go. I want them to go. I want everything to be made new. And that's what Jesus, uh, that's what God is going to say in verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne, okay, so I think this different person, I think this is God talking, obviously. He's on the throne. He said, behold, I make all things new. Can anybody here say that? No. We can't even make ourselves new, let alone anybody else, or accomplish any kind of deliverance in this world. In Isaiah 26, all right, you're going to have to, like, hear this and forgive me ahead of time. Like, just know that you're gonna, I'm going to need a little forgiveness from you, a little forbearance. But here's what, here's what uh, you know, Isaiah says in 26, verse 18. He says, you know, for the, for the believer, for the faithful, you know, or for mankind in general, I guess. He says, we have, as it were, we brought forth nothing but wind. Nothing but wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world, like the world system, nor have we changed the world. That's, that's a profound statement because we want, we want to be influential, don't we? We want to affect change. We want to do great things. And, you know, what he says is we have only brought forth wind. Okay. So maybe men, this never happens to ladies. I'm sure, but maybe men, you can relate to me. You know, my brother one time, he was at a job site. There was a 40-yard dumpster, like the biggest kind that you can get on a truck. And he didn't like where they dropped it. So he thought, I'm going to move that thing. I'm going to shift it a little bit. You can't move a 40-yard dumpster. I think it even had some stuff in it. A big, huge steel box. You can't budge it. But he thought he could. So, uh, you know, he went over there and he, and he gave it his best. He's a pretty rugged guy. All he did was throw out his back, you know? I know, and here's the part you have to forgive me for later. You know, it just said that, you know, us and all of our 
you know, perceived strength, we bring forth the wind. I've tried to lift some heavy things, and the only thing that has come out is a big old fart, you know? That's all that's come out. I hope you remember that. You remember that, you know, all of man and all of his wisdom and all of his intellectualism and all of his, you know, action and all of his, have we changed the world? No, Jesus had to come and change what we could never have affected or never have changed ourselves, even us, you know? Um, maybe that's taking a little out of context, you know? Isaiah, Isaiah just said wind. I, I took a little fire, you know? But the point is, God said, behold, I make all things new. I'm the one that has done this. I'm the one. And he said to me, right, for these words are true and faithful. It's like God told John, look, this is not just for you. I want you to record this and write it down for the benefit of thousands of years of believers that are, that are going to feel like they're just putting water into a pot and saying, what, 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 what can come out of this? What can come out of simple obedience and faith? Well, wine can come out. Incredible things can come out. That's what God alone can do. He, behold, look, he makes all things new. You know, what's amazing, guys, is that we can experience that newness right now. And you're saying, well, this is about the future. Well, for the Christian, you know, first, or second Corinthians, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 5, verse 17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is already a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So my question to you, if, if that kind of newness is accessible now, are you living in it? Are you walking in it? Are you enjoying it? Are you striving for it even? Newness can happen now. We can be a new creation now. The old passed away. The new come in our lives. It's not just a, hey, let's hang tight and bunk, bunk or bunk or down, hunker down and uh, wait for, you know, the new heaven and the new earth, because that's when things will really be made. No, no, he wants to make us new creations right now. Are we walking in that? God goes on in verse 6, and he says, he said to me, he said to John, it is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I'm the one, you know, Alpha, Omega, you know, beginning and end of the Greek alphabet. I'm the beginning and the end. I started it. I'm going to finish it, and I'm going to do it this way, he says in verse 6. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who is thirsty, who thirsts. You know, I love that verse. I will. Okay, what is God saying? He's saying, I will, I desire to give. Well, a gift is free, isn't it? And that's what he says. I will give of the fountain. It's not a droplet. It's not a, like, you're not, you know, you know, tip, tipping the cup back because you want that last little drip and that's all he's giving. He says, I will give of, of the fountain of, wa of the water of life. It's like, like Jesus said, torrents of living water, something that will actually satisfy your soul. What we live in is a world where people have flocked to inferior drink that does not satisfy their thirst. And they're walking around totally dissatisfied, totally discontent and saying, why isn't this making me feel better? because it's not real drink. The real drink is free. The real drink comes from Jesus. The real drink comes not because you've crossed heaven and earth to find it, but because God stooped to this world, entered our world, and made it available and said, hey, if you need 
drink. You need the bread of life. You need rest. Come to me and I'll give that to you. That's what he said. His invitation. I will give to, I will give of the fountain of the water of life. Look, freely. What does freely mean, Wyatt? I want to give you something for free. Does that cost you anything? No. Freely. Undeservedly. Look, if you're discontent, if you know that you're thirsty, Jesus is saying, come. It ain't going to cost you anything. It costs me everything. But that's real love that he demonstrated. You know, you may be like me. I'm a natural-born skeptic and say, well, why do I need Jesus every day then? You know, if I, if I you know, came once, shouldn't that, like, incredible water, you know, that should satisfy my thirst, shouldn't that keep me forever? And, uh, you know... Here's my take on that now, 10 years later. I used to think things like that. It's like, every time I go to Jesus, I'm satisfied. There is the need continually in this world, because of who I am and how broken and fallen I am, to go back again and again. But every time I go in sincerity and truth, He receives me in His grace and sustains me and satisfies my soul. It's my choice to, to go or not go. And you as Christians, you know what I'm talking about. There are times where we just, we're just being stubborn. We're just wandering off and we like it, you know. He says, every time you come to me, I will satisfy you. You know, you won't get that from the world, any form, any kind of inferior drink, which is different for all of us, right? He, uh, what it says next is, is, is very telling, it's very revealing. He says, he who overcomes shall inherit... Inheritance is a gift from a father to a son. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. We're talking like family, like adoption. You know, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what God is talking about. And notice it says, he who overcomes. You're like, well, the, the drink is free, but I've got to overcome. What does that mean? Like, I've got to, I've got to like, I don't know. What, I mean, overcome, it sounds like a lot of, what, 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 what do we have to overcome? I guess is my question. I think for me, personally, the, the, the summation of that could be said in one word. Uh, my pride. The gift is free. The gift is free. Overcoming my pride. The thing that keeps me away from a free gift is my pride. I don't need that. I can accomplish that myself. I want to make a farting noise so bad. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's like, that, that's the reality. I'm going to accomplish that myself. No, I'm not. No, deliverance comes from Him. Deliverance comes from Him. He who overcomes, he who overcomes his own pride and receives that gift like a child, Jesus said, would receive the kingdom. He'll inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Man, that there's like really no. Think about it, guys. You know, all of these analogies, all these things that we experience on earth that are wonderful, um, they're still broken. There's still, we're it's still fallen world here, but like the, the analogy of a husband and a wife, what, what, what does that point to? The greatest reality is we're the bride of Christ. The analogy here of a father and a son. What does that point to? The greatest reality is still to come. The reality of a servant and his master. The greatest reality is still to come. You know? Jesus, Jesus is our older brother, the Bible says. 
you know, this re relationship. I have an older brother. You know, I know a little bit of that relationship here, but the real thing, the genuine thing, everything here is just a shadow of the goodness that he's going to bring about. It says, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Listen, but, and this is the last verse, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know, verse 8. There's part of me that just, this is such a good section. Why does it have to be there? Well, it's not for the believers, you know, that are going into the, you know, it's not like there's one last moment where, uh, um, you know, God is like, well, hold on, let me double check and make sure everybody that's here is supposed to be here. And if you're one of these, you're out. Like, this is something that God is telling John to write down for our benefit before this has come to pass. And when he says, does anything, I mean, this just stands out to me, but he says, but the cowardly and the unbelieving, he uses those two things first before any of the really bad sins on that list. Why do you think? Why does he say the cowardly? Like unbelieving, I even kind of get. Like unbelievers, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Like that makes sense. But the cowardly. So you've got to be brave. What, what is that about? You know, that word cowardly is used three times in Scripture. The only other two times, same story, two different Gospels, it's used. And I'd like you to turn here with me. It's where we're finished. But it's used in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus tells his disciples, listen to this. And, you know, you can read into it and spiritualize it a little bit like I did. He tells his disciples to get into a boat and he says, hey, we're going to go to the other side. Right? Perfect, perfect timing for a long more to go by. I'm going to wait. It's funny because I do tractor rides like that with my kids on the... In fact, we uh, some of you have seen us do this, but we take a... What's it called? The snow sleds? What are they? Jet sled. And we hook up a road on the back of my riding lawnmower. I turn the blade off. Don't freak out. And uh, we zip around because those ride just as well on snow as they do on grass. And we go around my big yard and it's a blast. My kids love it. Uh, Caleb especially. Anyway, tractor's gone. We can resume. Um, so Mark chapter 4, uh, four uh, the, uh, verse 35. I'm sorry, I didn't give you a reference. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Jesus tells his disciples, hey, we're going to go to the other side. We're going to go to the other side of this lake. Okay, I'm just going to tell you where my mind went with that. There's another side. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. I can't see it yet, but I know it's out there, and I know Jesus is sending me towards that, right? We're all traveling to the other side. You know, I don't know. Kind of corny. But hang with me. Jesus says, let's go to the other side, and he hops in the boat with them. You guys know the story. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. It was filling up with what? Water. Look, I think this is a fitting description of my life. I don't know about you. I'm headed somewhere, right? I was told by Jesus, set your eyes on things above, bud. You know, you're headed for a kingdom you can't see, but it's coming as the realest thing that there is. You're headed for the other side. He hops in the boat with me, and then... 
I'm like thinking, well, it's, it's going to be feast. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be, you know, honeymoon bliss the whole time. And a storm comes. What the heck? This wasn't supposed to happen. Life wasn't supposed to be this way. Was it? And this storm comes and it's getting worse and worse. And my boat's filling up. And I'm like doing this like, but I'm a disciple of Jesus. God that created everything. And my boat's filling up with water. And he's right there, and he's sleeping. Pierce 2, and the disciples are going to say it. They say it clearest in Mark. He was in the stern. He was asleep on a pillow. Um, and 